we're officially back in business. Welcome inside to Open Run, presented to you by War Media. My name is Gabriel Wilkins, and I'm joined by my co-host and senior writer here at War Media and Josh Hicks to discuss all of the latest matters to take shape across the basketball world on top of some very scintillating matchups going down in the conference semifinal round as we record this and much more. What's been going on with you, Josh? Basketball, 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 and I'm enjoying every second of it. Yeah, how could you not after this weekend Slater games include the doubleheader set um, to cap off this weekend in Philadelphia and Phoenix that lived up to the hype and some as the stars definitely showed up and showed out. But in this week's installment of Open Run, we will take out the time to discuss a couple of series that are currently tied up at two games apiece after witnessing a plethora of incredible performances from the NBA's top stars to close out this past weekend in those specific matchups, while also taking a moment to converse about a 19-year-old French center who is arguably one of the best NBA draft prospects to emerge onto the basketball scene within the last two decades and more. However, before we do that, let's take the opportunity to show some love to those who did some magnificent things on the way to setting some historic milestones over the past several days to open up the show with our hoop shout out segment. Special hoop shout outs go out to Bronny James, the son of Lakers all-star forward, LeBron James, who announced that he has officially committed to play for USC prior to the conclusion of last weekend as the McDonald's All-American recruit is set to star besides the nation's top-ranked player in Isaiah Collier to provide Trojans head coach Andy Enfield with one of the country's most electrifying freshman backcourt parents this upcoming fall in the Pac-12. In addition to the process, better known as Philadelphia 76ers star center Joel Embiid, who was named the NBA's MVP last week for the 2022-23 season, beating out Giannis Antetokounmpo of the Milwaukee Bucks and Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets to capture the league's highest individual honor. And B averaged a career best and league high 33.1 points per game to go alongside of 10.2 rebounds per game while shooting nearly 55% from the field during the regular season to become just the second player from Africa to ever win the award. So now that we have officially took out some time to reflect upon the hallmark accomplishments that have transpired within the last week across basketball, what are some things that you have seen within either the conference semifinal round or the hoops landscape as a whole that has found a way to capture your eye, if not impress you the most, Josh? Interesting enough, I'm not going to go necessarily any athlete per round. I'm, I'm going to go something that's associated with the athlete. The first person I'm going to give a shout out to or I, or I paid attention to, Spike Lee. Why Spike Lee? He's about to make us make himself another loving basketball sequel. You got Bronny James up at USC. You got <laughs> Juju Walkers at USC. Oh my goodness. How can you not want to put the movie together? What? <laughs> this is ideal. If I'm Spike Lee, I'm calling, I'm calling LeBron right now and say, hey, bro, can we just make a film for your for your kid and Juju and just do some type of sequel? Because this is perfect. USC's back on the map. You got the stars there. Central, South Central LA. I mean, come on now. It's, and LeBron has Spring Hill. He might even use Spring Hill to get it done. This is perfect. 
I just don't see what I just can't imagine Spike Lee being on the on the line right now saying, Braun, let's make this happen. I can see Braun saying, You want some of this extra money, Bronny? I got you. Boom, let's make it happen. I want to see the film. And the second person I'm gonna give a shout out to, Tasha Cobbs. I don't know if you're in the gospel realm, Gabe, but if you grew up in black church and you got a black fa- family that's d- devout Christians and listen to gospel music, you know who Tasha Cobbs Leonard is. And she played an intricate role in helping the 76ers win. Who would have thought? Doc Rivers brought Jesus in a locker room and turned the whole thing around. James Harden listened to a gospel song sent by Doc Rivers himself, our fellow Maywoodian, and he said, do you know your name? James Harden is like, this is interesting. I don't know, really listen to gospel that much, but you know what? Let's play it. Played it, listened to it, came back and dropped 40 plus. Brought the, brought the Sixers to a win. There I said, James Harden had found Jesus and now they're, now they're about to win, get more games. Oh man, you want to talk about a storyline? Oh my goodness, that would be crazy but awesome. And as a fellow Christian myself, I support this. However, let's be serious, man. It, this, this weekend for me was not necessarily the players themselves. It was the, the things that happened associated with the players that brought relevancy and storylines that to me, we just could not, I just couldn't pass up. So those are my shout outs and things that I paid attention to this weekend. Love and Basketball 2 coming to a theater near you. And Tasha Cobb's bringing Jesus to the locker room that saved the Philadelphia Sixers season for now. I don't know what better weekend you can have with that. I didn't hear about the Tasha Cobb's Leonard story. I'm not really much of a gospel head. I know people that's in the gospel devoutly. I do go to church, but I'm not going to lie. I'm more I'm more <laughs> the turn up type. You know what I'm saying? When I go to church, sure. I go more so for scripture than anything. But I, I didn't I wasn't familiar with the Tasha Cobb's Leonard story and Doc giving James Harden a song, you know, to listen to prior to game four or whatever. If that's what motivated him, hey, praise be to God in the James for the performance he put up. But I thought it was, you know, little baby showing up and showing out. <laughs> man. You know, I, I didn't I didn't know it had to do with that. I thought maybe they got some inspiration from the club a little bit. But as far you know, now as far as what you talk about with Love and Basketball, the sequel with LeBron James Jr. and Juju Watkins, man, I tell you what. You you giving away some million dollar ideas, man. We, we got to get you some royalty checks coming because I would have kept that to myself. <laughs> but, between, <laughs> but between the NIL money that them two have, if they was able to do that or even have like a nice little documentary series with them both being a part of it in some way that was similar to the Love and Basketball movie and film itself, that would be interesting. But for me, the two things that impressed me the most in the basketball world was first and foremost, James Harden. Here's a guy who has been maligned so much for his style of play. People saying, well, he's never came through in the clutch. He's never, he's never performed well when the lights are the brightest. And a lot of people want to create these narratives, which in my opinion are not true. And they never tell the full story and put it into perspective about the obstacles that he's had to overcome throughout his career. This is a guy that's played against some all-time great teams, such as the big three in Miami, mm-hmm. trying to get through the Warriors in the Western Conference as a member of the Houston Rockets. To go from shooting five for 28 
to say, you know what? I'm going to just empty the clip. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to seek the attack and the pick and roll, getting downhill, getting to the rim, and I'm going to let my step back off, and I'm going to do whatever I can. I may not be the same athlete that I once used to be, but I could get the job done. I think it speaks volumes. And I think it's unfortunate that we as a society are just not starting to appreciate James Harden's game, especially when you consider that he's the only man in the history of this league to win three scoring titles on top of two assist titles. And it's not every day that you see a guy that knows how to balance both. But he's found a way to keep his career going in spite of his athleticism and his first step declining over the last three to four years. And a lot of that you could say is due to injuries, such as issues with his hamstring and, and et cetera. But he continuously gets the job done. And his performance yesterday in the wake of his last two games in which he struggled, it was really looking like a guy that was too passive at times. I, I have to clap my hands for him and, and, and give him kudos because that's not easy to do. And it was much needed. And I think it will continue to be needed for a Philadelphia Sixers team that's trying to overcome obstacles and hurdles in order to move upward in the Eastern Conference. And that's getting past the second round, something that Joel Embiid has not been able to do in his, in his NBA career to date. And I think having a guy like James Harden who's been there and done that before, even though not many times, will be helpful along Joel Embiid's journey just as much as Doc Rivers will, as you alluded to, was already helpful to James Harden, been helpful to Embiid as well. And then I got to give some kudos to guys like Darvin Ham and Monty Williams, head coaches who for a while had me scratching my head. Like, why aren't they not playing the role players? Why are they not using guys on their bench that could be helpful and impactful to the success on their roster? Well, Darvin Ham did that this weekend. Austin Reeves was struggling, chasing Klay Thompson on screens and so forth. He said, Lonnie Walker, you gave me good minutes as a starter early this year. I'm going to put you in right now. And kudos to Lonnie Walker for staying ready. Had a big game. Did a great job chasing Klay Thompson and Steph off some screens. Shout out to Darvin Ham for also putting Jerry Vanderbilt on Clay Thompson. He already had him trying to defend Clay, but if you neutralize the second option, well, you don't have to worry about the first option so much. He's going Steph going to get his regardless. But being able to neutralize that second option, I think paid a huge dividend. And, and Monty for playing Terrence Ross and TJ Warren in the bench proved to be vital to. Phoenix's success over this weekend and drawing even with Denver at two games apiece. And shout out to, you know, Landry Shaman as well, who hit some big time threes in that fourth quarter. So trusting your bench, playing your guys. I know it's not too many adjustments you can make in a playoff series where teams know what you're going to run and whatnot. But when you need to make them, when your back's against the wall and you're seeking to regain control of a series or take control, those are the necessary things that have to be done. And Darvin Ham and Monty Williams did the thing this weekend, and I got to pay respects to them on that, and I hope they continue to do that because that's going to lead to even more success for their team, especially if they could get what they are capable of getting from those role players. Completely agree with you, man. Um, this is what the playoffs are all about, right? And they're living up to the hype of what it means to be a winning coach uh, that wants to win the game. Um, and James Harden is just being – what we know James Harden can be. He needs to do it on a level that, quite frankly, 
he's rewinding back the clock a little bit. Uh, and he's doing it in such a way where you can also say he's sending a message with all the rumors going around saying that James Harden is pretty much a lock to leave. You know, Houston's really eyeing the situation based on how these playoffs go. He might leave Philly. He's saying, wherever I go, this is what you're going to be getting. So choose wisely. And uh, he's definitely letting it be known out there. And, you know, you, I'm, I appreciate you letting the world know about my royalty checks. I'm going to need that. But I'm also going to need a cameo experience. I got to be in the movie as well. I need a role. I, it could be very minor, but I just need to be in the, in the movie. So that way I can get my little two cents of acting out of the way. And then I can also get the royalty checks after that. So me and Spike, we'll talk about that, though. We'll talk about that when, I, when he hears this. We'll talk about that. <laughs> And speaking of our show this week, we got a special guest who is making an appearance on Open Run beside me and Josh for the second time this season and happens to cover the Atlanta Hawks over at Soaring Down South on Fansided while also providing you with analysis on the latest NBA-related matters to take shape over on Heavy.com, who goes by the name of Josh Buckhalter. Josh, what's been going on with you, man? going on fellas how you doing doing excellent man i can't complain most definitely what's up jay i'm good man i'm good trying to uh just trying to stay alive man. <laughs> <laughs> i heard that but i want to get into a conversation with you before we get into any further playoff talks and actions that's going down in this postseason as we record this episode about the atlanta hawks 41 and 41 record during the regular season they fired nate mcmillan as the head coach in the middle of the year during the All-Star break while going out on the marketplace in the middle of the year to hire Quinn Snyder, came into this season with a lot of buzz. DeJounte Murray was acquired in the offseason trade with the San Antonio Spurs. They paired him besides Trey Young to try and form an All-Star backcourt duo down in the Peachtree State. Cal Corver was named assistant GM back in January. He's now tasked with working alongside of Landry Fields there in the Hawks front office. Earned seventh seed after defeating the Miami Heat in the play-in round but they managed to lose to the seas in six games in spite of a valiant effort against the defending Eastern Conference champs. They only have two free agents, Aaron Holiday, Trent Forrest, currently on a roster that's set to hit the marketplace this summer, and I believe they're supposed to have a 15th pick in the first round of the draft this upcoming June, according to Tankathon, as they fall just one pick outside the lottery. What are your overall thoughts on the Hawks based off, off of what you saw this past season? And what moves do you think need to be made by this new front office regime? As there's been a lot of restructuring within that front office between Landry Fields and Cal Corp. Uh, I think you you kind of just nailed it there. With there's so much change going on, that I think that small but but significant moves might be more impactful than a, like wholesale change that you typically see when you have regime changes like this. Um, as you mentioned, there were 41, 41 in the season, but you have to break that up. You know, you have the, the Nate McMillan time, then you have the Quinn Snyder time. They were 13 and 15 with Quinn Snyder, but even that you got to break that up because they won four of their last six games. So, uh, you can say that, you know, Snyder got there. There was going to be some obvious hurdles, some speed bumps. They got over those and, and kind of started to gel there. And I think there was some promise. You, you had guys who were, uh, buying in from, from go right. Um, Trey, and despite his reputation, Trey had been more bought in on defense than I've ever seen him in the years that I've been covering the team, which has been a couple of years now. So um, that's very good improvement for him. And then it's only been bolstered by the fact that he has a very strong faith and belief in what Quinn Snyder is preaching. It's to a man. Uh, you can hear the difference in how they speak on what they're being taught 
in fact, they're being taught. And that's a big uh, step for a lot of those guys in that locker room. It's a young team, a very young team. And so um, this is the bones of a core that got to the Eastern Conference Finals a couple of years ago. I'm, I'm of the mindset that you need a small couple of tweaks more than, than wholesale changes. Um, I would like to see them add some more perimeter defense, a three and D guy. If you could get a really knockdown shooter that can also defend, I think you set yourself up for, for success there because that's really all they're missing is another perimeter stopper. Um, I'm, I'm a big on putting guys in the right position and I'm maybe not sold on Deandre Hunter as the primary defensive stopper on the wing, but you know, the help guy, he'd be great in that role. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at with that. And uh, like I said, it's, it's positive despite all of the turnover that they had mid season. I think that things are looking up for the Hawks. I'm glad you mentioned uh, DeAndre Hunter, man, because DeAndre Hunter came coming out of, you know, Virginia, winning that championship, the national championship, and being drafted by the Hawks. There was a lot of high expectations for this guy. Um, and he was, and he has the potential to live up to what that hype can look like, but injuries derailed him in his seasons uh, throughout his tenure so far. And you have good flashes. You have some hot times, some good times. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, he's the real deal. And then you have some where you see his regression, trying to fight back and get his body back together. Um, what do you ideally see for DeAndre Hunter to be on this roster? You talk about making a couple of tweaks and changes. Is maybe one of those changes replacing him with someone of that caliber, but more stability, more sturdy, maybe healthier, um, and things of that sort. So that way they can help progress the Hawks moving forward instead of trying to, instead of continuing to look back and wondering, what you're going to get out of DeAndre Hunter because it's so inconsistent. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Hunter is the highest draft pick on the team as a former number four, I believe, overall pick. So mm-hmm. he's got the highest draft stock on the roster, which is saying a lot when you have a cross with Trey Young on it. Um, I, I, I think he's, like I said, a guy who's probably best served as being your help defender, your, your guy who's coming over to support, you know, the guy. Um, they don't really have a point of attack defender, and that's their primary problem. They couldn't stop dribble penetration to save their life. So um, DeAndre or DeJounte Murray is miscasting that role. Hunter is miscasting being that, that primary stopper on the big wings. And so for him, I think it's a guy who can be a helper, uh, you know, the number two option, I guess, on defense, and then a guy who can help you uh, someone offense because he showed an ability to create off the dribble. He doesn't really play me for others, but he can definitely get his own shot, and I think that's a big a big plus, especially for a team like uh, we're talking about, like I said, with, with Trey Young on it. Um, we saw them last year in the playoffs get kind of bogged down. That was the impetus behind them getting DeJounte Murray. Um, but Hunter is also showing that he can do some of that as well. And he showed that again in this postseason. Went from 15-something points uh, in the regular season to 16.7 in the postseason. So that's that's something that you want to see, guys that step up on that big level. So I think I've always thought he was too stiff to be a primary defender in the NBA anyway. Uh, so I think that you just kind of have to lean into what he does do well and try to kind of try to build around that. And to that point, I believe that he's at the last check, he was a member that they considered of their core, you know, the untouchable core. So uh, him, Murray and Trey. So he's not going anywhere. I think they just have to try to build out the roster a little bit better to fine tune what the rest the guys that they want to have there do well. You talk about DeAndre Hunter and how they need a three and D wing. What are your thoughts about a guy like Sadiq Bay, who they acquired during the trade deadline this year in the wake of firing Nate McMillan? to sort of be that guy, even though I know he's a young player with promise who hasn't really shown that he can be that consistently. What are your thoughts on him? And what do you think will be key for him to work on this offseason as he looks to find himself a home in Atlanta long-term? 
first thing I want to say thank you to the Gold State Warriors on behalf of the Atlanta Hawks for uh, making such a fuss about getting Gary Payton instead of hanging on to Sadiq Bay because I thought that that was literally one of the sneakiest uh, best pickups that I've seen in a while at a trade deadline. Um, I love what he brought to the team, his energy, uh, his shot making ability, his his size helps him when he has to go through contact. But he is not a good defender, and we saw that in the playoffs. He was getting roasted. He's 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 chicken down there. So. Um, if he wants to get that long term, he has to show gains like noticeable gains and consistency on the defensive end of the floor. That was, like I said, just the, the only thing that I could knock him on because he was hustling on both ends. He wasn't for lack of trying. It just I'm not sure if he has a lateral agility, lateral mobility to uh, to stick with some of the, the quicker guys that we're seeing now. You know, the, the league now is playing with guys up a position. So you have wings today are a lot quicker than they were when Sadiq even came in the league. So um I would just like to say that, or I would just say that he would have to work on that if he wants to get that long-term deal, but I don't think they have any plans on him leaving anytime soon anyway. Yeah, I can imagine that they wouldn't, especially after just getting him and only having him for just a half a season trial run. And one other question I have for you, you know, we talk about Trey Young. He's the face of this franchise, as we know. He's about to enter his sixth season in the league. Quinn Snyder is about to enter his first full season is the head coach of the Atlanta Hawks going into 23-24. Do you believe that Quinn Snyder is the guy who can finally help Trey Young and company reach the promised land? Because as you mentioned earlier, this was a team that went on a surprise run to an Eastern Conference Finals under Nate McMillan, and we thought they were only just beginning. Since that time span, they've been sent home in back-to-back years in round one. What are your thoughts on that? I actually just wrote about this because uh, Quinn Snyder just got done uh, firing everybody on the coaching staff to bring in his own staff, which is natural. That's part of the, you know, part of the uh, job description, but it's the same thing that Nate McMillan did when he went on that run. He did that with Lloyd Pierce's staff. Uh, he changed the staff over the Hawks won. I think, oh, I think they went 43 and 39 the next season. And then this past year with Nate, they were uh, 29 and 30. So uh, we saw the decline from that moment on. I'm, I'm hoping and praying that because they're going from the opposite, that it'll have the opposite impact on Snyder and his staff. Um, but with, with Trey and Snyder together, I think at a certain point, star players need to have a star coach. And that's no disrespect to meant to Nate at all or Lloyd Pierce at all. But I think that Quinn Snyder has them in that regard. Um, he's has a, the proven track record of success in this modern version of the NBA. Um, he's worked with a star uh, and uh, offensive engine type of star before. So the bona fides are there. Um, and like I said before, the buy-in is there from the players. And that's not, again, to say that they didn't like Nate or wanted to learn from Nate, but you can tell when Nate got fired and when Quinn got hired, the tone, the tenor, the things that guys were saying that they appreciate what Quinn Snyder is bringing. So I'm very encouraged. I'm, I'm very careful nowadays to not put any type of expectations on anything because, you know, things just go awry for any reason. But I'm very, very encouraged by the things that I've heard and seen from the Hawks uh, since Snyder was brought on. Josh, we got one of the guys that's kind of been a question mark as far as his future in Atlanta, John Collins. Yes, he has his long-term deal, but there's always been questions between not just his time with Lloyd Pierce, but also with Nick Millen, you know, positioning, does he fit within the offense, et cetera. Do you think that there's a bright future now with Quinn Snyder being um, as the head coach and having the familiarity of working with big men and versatile big men like a Rudy Gay uh, back in Utah to a point where, you know, he can find a role for John Collins to fit in this new offense? Is there is is there gonna are we gonna go into next year not having that many question marks about John Collins' availability and uh, what he could bring to this team uh, compared to previous years? No, 
Um, and I say that with with the highest regard for John Collins and what he brings on the on both ends of the floor, honestly, because I think that his defense has been underrated, at least for this past year. Uh, the problem with Collins at the four, in my opinion, is that you need a knockdown shooter with what Snyder wants to do. You need that floor spacing, and Collins' shot just was not there. Um, a lot of people blame the finger, but he shot well after he injured the finger, and something for some reason between there and now has just not clicked. Uh, he's also been mired in these trade rumors for the past three years now. At some point, you either got to go or get off the pot, and I feel like we're kind of at the the the, the first stage there because – I'm not sure that there's more touches when what you're trying to do already is diversify the offense. That's where Hunter, I think, comes in. If you can become any more secure in his health, right? And, and that's not saying much because Collins' health has been kind of questionable as well. But I wouldn't be against moving Hunter up a spot and then finding a more traditional or a more modern version of the 3 and D wing uh, to go in that three spot because I'm just not sure that you can have Collins out there with another big man and if you put Collins at the five, your rim protection is not what you would imagine it uh, should be with somebody as athletic and who can block shots like he can. So um, I love John Collins. I, I, I appreciate all that he's done. And I'm one of the people who have wished that he's gotten the ball more to show what he can do. It's a 20 and 10 guy we're talking about here, uh, but it's just not happening in Atlanta. And there's been so much ambiguity about what they want to do with him that I think you kind of have to do this for both sides to kind of just move on. You talk about a three and D wing, as I just asked you about Sadiq Bay earlier. They do have the number 15th overall pick in this year's draft coming up in June. Is that a direction that you would seek to go in if you were in the seat of a Landry Fields or a Cal Corver in Atlanta's front office? Because that's the vibe I'm getting. You say that they need some size and they need a guy who's capable of knocking down shots in Quinn Snyder's offense, which I agree, because just dating back to his time in Utah, especially his final years in Utah, they were among the league leaders and three-point attempts per game. And that's what helped spark one of the years they had in Utah. I believe it was 2020-2021, the shortened year coming out of the bubble where they had the best record in the West. Yeah, I so I could see them going that direction in the draft, but I also think that they want to compete. And we know how hard it is to compete with young guys right out the, right out of the gate. So I could see them doing that with eyes in the future, but I also see them maybe, if this is what they try to do, Addressing that with a more veteran player because I'm uh, this is a roster that's ready to contend now for at least uh, some some respect in the Eastern Conference, if not for an Eastern Conference Finals berth again. So I, I I'm always against you know pigeonholing anybody in any, into any type of move, but if I was in Landry Field's seat, this roster is built for now. And adding another rookie to it, I, I get financial ramifications and trying to keep the cap sheet looking clean for years to come, and maybe that's the route that you go with it ultimately, but. If it's between that or adding a veteran, I would say that they would add a veteran, try to make sure they can keep on uh, competing with the rest of the Eastern Conference. What type of veteran do you prefer that they go after? Because when you talk about three and D's, it's a nice little free agent market that has some three and D talent, especially when you're talking about someone like a Chris Middleton that could be available. Mm -hmm. um, what direction do you think they can go in that realm, especially from a free agent perspective, that's a veteran player, but can give the Hawks team what they're looking for? And that, and that it's more specifically, like you just mentioned, that veteran presence to take the Hawks to the next level. So their interesting uh, predicament that they're in is they are trying to dance around that salary, that luxury tax line. So a guy like Chris Milton is probably going to just be out of the market for them because that's a, an aging veteran who's also has some injury issues and is going to command a pretty penny. Um, I would see them maybe going a guy like a Josh Hart, as I'm sitting here watching the, uh, the Knicks and the Heat do battle in the background here. 
Um, that would be a perfect kind of accomplishment because not only does he bring the, the ability to shoot and play his defense, he can play up position, down position, wherever you need him to be, but he's also got an attitude and an edge that I think that this team often lacks. We saw what Murray brought with his edge to it. I think you get one more guy in there to kind of solidify that um, and maybe even a, a bigger guy than Hart just so you can get a little bit more uh, physicality out of that position as well. But that would be somebody that I would look for maybe more than a, a high-end name like a Chris Middleton because this isn't a team that I think is lacking for offense as much as it's lacking for some stopping power and somebody that can be uh, uh, can go get the bucket in the tougher moments. I don't know if I'm, if I'm putting that right because I think Murray's still that guy, but he's a guard. It's kind of hard for a smaller guard who's already playing out of position to assert himself in that way. You need that, that, uh, that, that different look, that different variation of your offense, and I think that that's what the Hawks are missing right now. And you, you, you talk about getting a guy like Josh Hart in the mix, that would be very intriguing and interesting because one thing we know about Josh Hart, he's won at every level. He was a winner at Villanova. And I think the Knicks getting him this year at the trade deadline, that was one of the biggest pickups throughout the deadline amongst teams in the Eastern Conference. As nice as it was to see the Hawks pick up Sadiq Bay. Josh Hart, once he came to New York, they took off and they were able to elevate themselves into a top five team in the East. But you talk about these wings. I like to ask you, what are your thoughts on the log jam at the center position? You got Clint Capella, who's one of the league's top rebounders, double-double machine, when healthy. And then on the other end, you have Oneka Okongu who's been one of the best backup centers in the league the last couple of seasons. And looks like a guy who's more than capable, if not ready to gain extended minutes in Atlanta. How do you think Quinn Snyder and his coaching staff will seek to utilize Oneka in the future? Because it's looking like to me from the outside looking in, when I evaluate the state of the Atlanta Hawks, that it's going to be more than just one or two trades made and that they got some serious decisions to make in regards to who stays long-term and who doesn't that are members outside of their core. Yeah. I was intrigued by the last couple of all seasons when they extended Capella and uh, Bogdanovich, because those are veteran guys on a team that had kind of stalled out a little bit. So that kind of caught me off guard a little bit as well, but I will say that with the Congo. So the, the issue with the Congo and Capella is Capella has got the size and he's got the relationship with Trey. Right. And like you said, when he's right, man, he's one of the best rebounders in the game. The problem is just that he's not always right. He hasn't been right for a past couple of years. And even when he's been healthier, he's looked like he's not had the same kind of explosiveness. He doesn't move the same. He's looked a little stiff. Uh, but then you go to a Congo. A Congo is even smaller than Capella is, despite the fact that he's more athletic. Um, he can, he's, you know, he can get up and down the floor with ease. Uh, he fouls, he gets into foul trouble and you still have that. You don't get as much, you don't get as good uh, of action on the rebounding uh, aspect either. So you're losing a lot, despite the fact that you might gain quite a bit if you move to Okongo. So it's, that's the conundrum that I have there and the money. I'm not sure there's always a way, but I'm not sure who's necessarily lining up to take on Capella's contract right now. After he got that extension, seeing what they saw last season and then without having anything else added to it. And if you're the Hawks, that's a dangerous game because you're not trying to take away from your core. You're trying to build upon it. So, um, that's where that that that's a very very big issue. It's been one for a couple of years now because before it was Capella and Collins, but now, like you said, you've got a Cog who's showing all these flashes, and you got to see what you have him at some have in him at some point. I think if you have enough faith that he can uh, cut down on the fouls next year, then you you maybe try to see what you can get for Capella. Uh, of course, as long as Trey is good with it, because again, like I said, they were close. So it's tough, man. It's this roster was built by somebody else 
long for a long-term vision and then they step down and now it's up to Landry Fields and company to try to clean it up and it's going to be tough it's going to be a very delicate line to walk one one of my final questions that I have for you is uh regarding Trey Young he's not just being a point guard on the court but he's about to be a point guard off the court we talk about his new podcast that's coming out from the point what's your thought about you know him going to get a podcast since you you know have have talked with him before and um you know where's that next direction could be I have not spoken with him yet. Looking forward to doing so in the future, hopefully. Uh, but I, I did see that he uh, said he's going to be doing the, the I think it's the From the Point podcast. It's, I'm excited to see it because he is a guy who is very careful with what he says to the media. Uh, so I'm interested to see how different he is when it's him asking himself questions or putting his own thoughts out there. Guys tend to be a little bit less guarded in that uh, kind of situation. So that that to me is the most intriguing part of it. I'm always interested in what players have to say about certain situations because we know that they're guarded in press conferences and and you know when the media asks them questions you can kind of see them kind of calculating how do I answer this without saying anything incendiary but when you get comfortable behind that mic in your own home man things tend to come out so that's the part that I'm looking forward to and Trey's a dude who's got a bit of sense of humor with the way he even even when he's kind of uh, kept the media at bay it's been with a little bit of wit and humor at times so I'm just interested to see how that all plays out I'm all for it man this is a it's a a, a vast world out there in the podcasting universe so I'm, I'm looking forward to everybody getting in that wants to yeah i can't wait to listen to it myself i've had some exchanges and interactions with rayford young myself the father of trey young and seems like a real cool dude i would love to see his father get on because i know he has a array of opinions on the game that i think need to be told in audio form and he knows the game and he's very knowledgeable he seems like he's been a hell of a father to trey and not just only a father, but like a mentor on a basketball court for him and, and exposing to the game at a young age and showing him that this is a business. And I think that's why you see Trey Young so many times come off so ultra professional in a lot of his interviews because he's been there and done that. He's seen it. He grew up, you know, in OKC in the middle of the thunder, rising in the prominence with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant having been, you know, had access with a front row seat and whatnot. So I, I, I can't wait to listen to it because I, I love Ice Trey and what he's doing. And I, I really appreciate what he's doing for the city of Atlanta as well, a, a, a market that has been in dire need of a superstar as far as the Hawks is concerned. And when you consider that prior to him, they didn't really have one outside of Dominique. So I, I want to see him win and build something special down there because I know when Atlanta has a winner, they come out. Yeah, I, I'm always interested because of the discourse around Trey is very uh, Luca centric, right? I'm just gonna put it out there. There's a lot oh, of fans sure. we that know. Was, yeah, so I, I'm in awe about it because we're talking about a guy who's led the league in total assists for the past two years now. Like it's back to back. Like this is not a, a fluke, right? Um, a guy who we've seen adapt when they said that he couldn't. So I'm I'm rooting for him uh, as a fan of the game. And I'm excited to hope and hoping that I get to keep covering him here with the Hawks, because again, like you said, it's, I don't know if there's been a star as bright as him in that city for quite some time. Indeed. But I want to let you go, Josh. I appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy man. Make sure you check out all his content and his work is soaring down South. The Hawks blog over on fan sided as well as at heavy.com. Josh Bughalter. Thank you once again, man. Appreciate you. Anytime, man. Anytime, man. Love y'all. Keep it up. For sure. No doubt. Yeah, but we're going to move on and we're going to segue into a set of conference semifinal matchups that are tied at two games apiece. You had the Sixers and the Celtics. 
game five coming up a couple days from now as we recording this at the top of the week. James Harden, as we talked about to open up this show, scored 42 points, hit several trades, including a big-time tray late in overtime off of a Joel Embiid double team in the corner to tie the series up after the Celtics took games two and three. When we recorded last week, Josh, we was closing up right around the time that game one in Boston was coming to a close and you had announced that Philadelphia won to draw first blood in the series. It was looking kind of dicey going into game four. It was a, it was a must win game for Philadelphia. What are your thoughts overall on that series? And who do you believe has the upper hand in what has now become a best of three series? This is this series to me is a battle of the role players. Um, that's really what it boils down to because James Harden is showing that he'll show up. Joel Embiid, we know the MVP, he's going to show up on Philly's side. You look at Boston's side, you know Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are going to do their thing. But it's a matter of what other role players are going to step up in ways that's going to take those stars ahead in this series. And the reality is, as much as Philadelphia, they have Tyrese Maxey, P.J. Tucker when necessary, uh, Yang and those guys really have come out uh, better when you talk about the home games that they that they played in this, throughout this series. But Boston has so much depth. And their depth is perimeter-oriented combined with the big men. They can, they can throw more than one guy at Joel Embiid. They can throw more than one guy at James Harden. And they're pretty much daring the other players like Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey to take off. And they're been inconsist- they've been inconsistent, uh, especially Tobias Harris, um, who has a history of that. So right now, Boston, I think, has the edge. They got the home court advantage. And on top of that, they have more resources on that bench that, could, that they could throw to help balance out this edge. Need mind you, P.J. Tucker's been MIA from an offensive production perspective in this series, but so has Grant Williams of the Boston Celtics. They've been cold too. So one of them has to break. And as me as a betting man at this present moment, I think Grant Williams is going to make the best move because he plays better at home. And they have more home games than the Philadelphia 76ers do, even though P.J. Tucker is the champion. So at the end of the day, man, I think it's just a matter of the battle of the of the, of the uh, reinforcements per se, and right now Boston has the most has the better options of reinforcements compared to the Sixers, and especially since those reinforcements are are very so much experienced in ways that Philadelphia isn't. I think that's what's going to give Boston the edge. I understand your argument on the role players. I also understand why you give Boston the edge. I mean, Boston is more championship proven than Philadelphia is, even though they have yet to do something as a group that I think a lot of people across the country are waiting on them to do, and that's capture a Larry O'Brien trophy together. And when I talk about together, I'm talking about the dynamic duo known as Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. In my opinion, it comes down to the stars. Jason Tatum, as great as he has been, particularly in games one 
in games three, game two and four, he's had some disappearing acts. That's game true. two, even though it resulted in a 30-plus point win for Boston, I think he only had seven points and shot like one for seven from the field. Game four, to close out this weekend in Philadelphia, I think he went scoreless for most of the first half. If he got a bucket, it was near like the tail end of the first half. Now, mm-hmm. he rallied and got himself together to where he scored 20-plus points in the second half. He had a huge impact on the defensive end of the floor, protecting the rim, blocking shots, rebounding, et cetera. But if not for Jalen Brown, that game could have got real ugly in game four. Mm-hmm. Could have got real ugly. I think the stars have to show up. You take James Harden, who was five for 28 in games two and three combined, he has to be more aggressive. We saw that in game four from him. Have to see that more consistently in order for the Sixers to win. If I was a betting man, I would say that Boston has the, the upper hand because of their track record, but not by much, especially when I see things that's happening on the coaching front with this team, such as Joe Mazzula having two timeouts in regulation and in overtime with a chance to win the game on the final possession in regulation and overtime, respectively, not call. Didn't even call. And yep. I can understand if you're playing with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen on the 90s Bulls, and you have a assortment of talent at your disposal, but no disrespect to Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, I don't know if I trust them enough to just let them go without a timeout and give me a bucket. I need to set something up. I need to draw up some more X's and O's. I need to get these guys in a setting and an action. A lot of things appeared to be helter-skelter late in regulation. And as great as it was to see Boston make a run and overcome a 16-point deficit to gain a five-point lead when less than, like, two minutes to play, they, they, they blew their chance at really taking full control of this series, and that's why we are where we are right now. So, in my opinion, I think it comes down to the stars and who is going to show up the most between Jason Tatum and James Harden. I get an upper edge to Boston, but it, it has nothing to do with home court. It's more so due to, like I said, track record. But I'm not counting Philly out either because Philly has shown me some resilience and some resolve to be able to weather storms. And P.J. Tucker, while he hasn't been aggressive when it comes to taking the catch-and-shoot opportunities that have been presented unto him, he has made some big plays, such mm-hmm. as what we saw in game four, on the glass, getting rebounds, putbacks, getting in Joel and B's ear, telling yeah. them, hey, I know Al Horford is causing you hell, but you got to continue to be aggressive. I think that was big to have a veteran in that spot yesterday who I don't think they win without him, even though he may not have had a lot of points on the stat sheet. He had some of the biggest plays in the game late in his activity on the glass, as well as Tobias Harris, has proved to be monumental. I I agree. Those are and that's a those are very good points. Uh, 
spot on as always. I just feel that with these reinforcements, I mean, the stars, are, that's what the playoffs are for. The stars are going to be stars. I think that eventually based on each game, the, you know, the stars are going to come out. But for the reinforcements to take these things to the next level, that's where they have to take that next step. Role, some, some role players may have to elevate and play like they are stars to help compensate what the other stars are bringing. Because when the stars play at the, at the best level, it's going to be a bloodbath. That's a given. That's what we want. But who else is going to help aid this experience in such a way to get the stars over the hump? And technically, if you want to be real technical, Philly, Philly has a really good opportunity to, to take a hold of that. But I don't trust Tobias Harris. He's too inconsistent. Um, and as much as I love Tyrese Maxey's game, he's coming along, but this is one of his real biggest tests. So I need to see how he, what, 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 you know, what way he's going to step up. And when you compare it to Boston, Brogdon's been there, done that. Derek White has shown he's been there, done that. They've shown that they can do these things with no issues. And like you said, track record plays a whole big role into this. But I'm glad you mentioned the coaching aspect. Because Joe Mazzula, there's some question marks. That, that it's, I'm, this is obviously his first real opportunity of coaching a team this deep, moving on. and. He does have that extension, I believe, with the Celtics now to be the, to be the main guy. But I think what he's experiencing is the privilege of having that of privilege, the privilege of having so much talent on one squad. Because if you take some of that talent out, so like you said, some of those coaching decisions, that could be literally the make it or break it line for him when it comes to maintaining maintaining the head coaching position moving forward. And I think because of the fact you have Jason Taylor and Jalen Brown, they kind of saving him a little bit. Um, but that's gonna be that's gonna be put to the test because, like you said, Philly's resiliency is, is 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 up there, and it's real. And they're showing they're not gonna back down, and they shouldn't. I think honestly, depending on who wins this next game in Game Five, may really determine who's gonna win this series. And historically, statistically. That has been the case. So you're right. You can't know you can't count none, you can't count any, either of these teams out. But those coaching, those coaching decisions, we always got on Doc Rivers for coaching decisions and what he didn't do. Now we're flipping the script a little bit. And I want to see how that fares out moving forward with the rest of this series for um between these two teams. Well, you gotta flip the script anytime you have two timeouts and you don't use them. Mm-hmm. If you use at least one of them, you can see, or if, if you're going to use the first one, you can use it after seeing what setup Philly's defense is in. Then you also advance the ball past half court. Mm -hmm. That's the issue I have with it. Don't make life any more difficult than what you have to do. And he's done this repeatedly throughout the entire year. I can understand it if you have an assortment of riches in the manner that Phil Jackson did. But with these guys, I don't feel as though you can do that. And I know that they played in multiple Eastern Conference finals over the last several years. They just recently won the Eastern Conference a season ago. Took Golden State six games. In a series where, at times, I will go to sleep some nights and think that the Celtics are indeed the better team. 
but they still have to learn how to truly win. They got a shirt that they wear before every game that says unfinished business on it. It's up to Joe Mazzula and his coaching staff just as much as it is to the players to determine whether or not that motto becomes a reality that culminates in a title. So I, I feel like everybody has a right to question Joe Mazzula on that because it just didn't make any sense. I, I, I respect him as a coach. I think he's done a hell of a job after being thrusted into that role. Mm-hmm. But man, I just couldn't understand it yesterday. I, I could not, especially when you know the Sixers defense has been one of the best in the league thus far in these playoffs and half court in, in situations where the game is played in the half court, shall I say. They have been when they really put their mind and their effort and their energy into doing so. The only way that the Celtics have really been able to kill them is in the transition game. Because as Doc Rivers have been alluding to in a lot of these post-game press conferences and even during in-game interviews with people such as Cassidy Hubbard is the importance of getting back in transition and how they haven't been doing that enough. That's straight straight facts, man. I'm, it's obviously, it's going to be interesting to see how this thing moving forward, but there's a lot more question marks with certain players that ain't being addressed. Not just players, but coaches too. So we're going to see how much that's going to be empowered post when this series comes to a conclusion there, depending on who wins, because you already have question marks about Doc Rivers in his, in his future, but you can question Joe Missoula and whether he deserved that long-term contract right away at the time that they gave it to him. Playoffs is a little different than what you experience with the sweet coasting in the regular season. And you, and that's being shed to light right now. Oh, for sure. But I want to move on from the East to the West. Talk about this Suns and Nuggets series. Nuggets, first two games defensively, made some big stops, got some key contributions from role players such as KCP, Bruce Brown, Aaron Gordon, Jokic, continuing to put up stellar numbers, proving to be no match at all for, for, for DeAndre Ayton you know, or, or not no match, but like proving to be a, a nightmare rather for DeAndre Ayton. Mm-hmm. Like, and then once the series shifts to Phoenix, Denver's defense just doesn't travel there. And Devin Booker right now, who we're going to get into a little bit later and have a further discussion on, is just shooting the lights out. Kevin Durant, even in spite of his shooting struggles, getting to the rim in the free throw line, making his money. We got an even series out there now. Game five, series shifts back to Denver. Between these two teams, who do you think has the edge in what is now best of three series? Man, that's tough. I'm not, I'm not going to lie, it's tough. But I'm still going to go ride high on Phoenix because for me, my question mark with Denver Where's Jamal Murray? I need Jamal Murray to show up. And that's what was, and that was my issue with choosing Denver in the beginning. As, you, as I know you know and aware of. Jeff, he was my expert as far as how far Denver can go. It's great having all the role players together, but if, you have, if you're Jokic and you're scoring 50-plus a game and your team still has never won a game when you score 50-plus, that's a problem. 
That means someone else got to show up, and Jamal Murray's that sidekick. You got to come through, bro. And when he doesn't come through, I think in a lot of ways, he should be killing it because Chris Paul's not playing. He should be taking advantage of all of that because Chris, Chris Paul hasn't been playing, but he hasn't, which leads to my next point. Chris Paul has Chris Paul being out has honestly, in its own way, been a blessing for Phoenix. They open that they open up that offensive floor so much that Devin Booker and Kevin Durant were just able to just say, "Let's go to work. Let's do what we're supposed to do." Like Devin Booker and Kevin Durant were supposed to be what Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant were supposed to be in Brooklyn, consistently, and that hasn't happened. But clearly now. Devin Booker is emerging into his own in such a way that was Kevin Durant by his side. They both can give you 50 and don't care. Like, that's just how they're built. And the fact that Monty Williams made the adjustments for that to be, uh, to flourish in the absence of Chris Paul, it's really been a blessing in disguise for this team and the boost that they need to really beat this Denver team. Because Denver has balance. But Phoenix has firepower. If you can over and over and over time, balance is fine, but it can wear down. If you can have enough firepower to keep going at that aggressive rate, the balance is eventually going to collapse. And that's what's been happening with this series. The, 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 the power is too much for Denver when it's, a, when it's effectively enforced. So because of that, I think Phoenix knows this is what needs to be done moving forward. And they're going to play that way. And along with the additions of, you know, bringing TJ Warren off the bench, like we talked about before, um, as well as Terrence Ross, that's going to change the game for them. And that's what they need. So I think Phoenix got the edge, man. I'm sticking with my Phoenix Suns. I had them going to the, to the uh, Western Conference Finals and to the NBA Finals. Um, and I think it's just because they finally found that sweet spot of the two stars that we know are certified bucket getters. They figured out what it takes for them to really go off together in getting this win. And they, as long as they apply that every night, they should be finding in good hands. When I, when I look at this series, I'm going to get an upper hand to Phoenix. Only reason why? Though, is not because I trust Kevin Durant and Devin Booker more. It's because I think if they could just get the assistance of one or two guys off the bench to the level which they got it in game four from the likes of a Landry Shamit, who stepped mm -hmm. up big time and hit multiple catch-and-shoot threes, while they were trapping and double-teaming on Devin Booker, that, 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 that's beneficial to them. Because Denver does have more depth as a team. I will give them that. They have way more depth. But most of the guys on Denver's roster that are, off of, that are coming off the bench and delivering quality minutes are mostly defensive guys. Mm -hmm. And if they can't get any offensive contributions from those guys and Phoenix can, I think Phoenix has the upper hand. My only question is, 
is how much longer can KD and Devin continue to hold up health-wise playing over 40-plus minutes a game each and every night, especially mm. in two out of the next possibly three games where you're going to be playing an extremely high altitude. Because in the first two games in Denver, Monty did something that annoyed me. He didn't play his guys off the bench. In some ways, Mike Malone has done the same. Mm -hmm. You got Reggie Jackson sitting there. You know your team needs an attic spark offensively. I think we're going to see Mike Malone make that adjustment and insert Reggie Jackson into the ball game going down the stretch in this series where whoever wins two out of three now is the winner and they advance to the Western Conference Finals. I agree with you on that. Because um, that's one thing about these two coaches. They have been known to make the necessary adjustments when they need to, um, which changes the competitiveness of the game, which is also why this series is so uh, so so good. But end of the day, for me, it's firepower against firepower. When your stars shine, who's going to shine the brightest? And to me, it's pretty uh, pretty simple, considered, considering the fact that Jokic had his big game and no one rode with him. But at least with Phoenix, D-Book had a big game, but so did Kevin Durant. They rode this thing together and said, we're going to get this thing done. And that means a lot in playoff times. So I want Jamal Murray to emerge. I want him to be that up next to guy because you are the set, you are the sidekick to Jokic. You are the point guard of this franchise. So you have to get this thing going, especially on the road. But that inconsistency, I can't trust him. When you know on the on the other end, you got consistent scoring coming at you the way that they is. And that's without Chris Paul chipping in his little fit 10, 15 necessary to get the job done in combination with them setting those guys up effectively. Um, yeah, if Reggie, Jack if Reggie Jackson comes in, it could be a different ball game. But until Jamal Murray emerges, I don't think, uh, I don't think Denver really has much of a chance. To me, Jamal's been playing fairly well. He's averaging over 26. I mean, he's put up 28 and 32 over the last couple of games on the road for them. So he showed up with Nikola Jokic. To me, the biggest X factor in Denver is who has always been. That's Michael Porter Jr. Michael Porter Jr. in game four went 4-13 from the floor. Mm -hmm. Even though he had a double-double with 11 points and 10 rebounds, that can't happen. And then you shoot two of nine from three-point land. That's the guy that's got to step up. And that's the guy who played a huge part in them overcoming the Minnesota Timberwolves in round one. Mm -hmm. Even though he may have struggled early on in games, he made a ton of big shots and plays on both ends of the floor in the fourth quarter. That's the guy that they need among starters to really step up for them and start knocking down some shots and being a little bit more aggressive. Because if they can get anything out of him, everything starts to change for them. The other guys I trust, 
not saying that I don't trust Michael Porter Jr., but Michael Porter Jr. is the guy who, in my opinion, has always been the biggest X factor in regards to how far Denver can go and whether or not Denver has what it takes to truly win a championship. That's the guy who has to be better. I think Jamal Murray has been fairly solid because when he got the matchups with Shamit down low Mm -hmm. or in, 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 you know, one-on-one isolated, he was able to get where he wanted on the block and even within the mid-range area of the floor. So I I like the way that Jamal Murray's been playing, but they just gotta get some more help from they from MPJ. That's that's the guy to me. That's the biggest X factor. But I want to ask you about an incident that transpired between Nikola Jokic and Suns owner Matt Isbia in Game Four. Matt Isbia ball went out of bounds. Matt Isbia trying to hold the ball. He like, this is my ball. Jokic's trying to get the ball like, hey, I'm trying to get it out of bounds so we can get moving and grooving on the court. Words were exchanged or whatever. Jokic give him a little slight push, had some altercation with a fan, got fined 25000 for it, and avoided a suspension. Do you agree with the league's following punishment in regards to Nikola Jokic, who, by the way, as you alluded to, he had 53 points to go alongside of 11 assists and a hell of a performance, although it resulted in an unfortunate loss for Denver. I mean, yeah, I agree with the, uh, with the league. You no, know, I don't think he should have been suspended or anything like that. Technical fouls, fine. You know, that, that was given to during the game. Um, I still think there's some inconsistency issues as far as figuring out what's a technical, what's not, what's a flagrant, what's not. That's a whole nother story. But in this case, you know, I, I I can agree with that. My biggest thing is this, though. Since they've been calling flagrant ones for intentional or unintentional uh, situations that can take place in the league, when you talk about, you know, growing shots and, you know, stomping on players and all that type of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Jokic could have handled that, that situation a lot better. He didn't have to push him. He could have easily just said, look here, ref. Help a brother out. I mean, because he got he got the ball. I'm trying to get it. Yo, help a brother out. Leave it in their hands to handle that situation. And if Israel gets in trouble, he gets in trouble. Cool. But you could handle this way instead of pushing someone in the middle of, of the of the of the stands. You could have, if the league was that strict on the groin shots and all the type of stuff and suspending players for certain things. Okay, cool. You could have done the same thing here with Jokic. You could have. I'm glad they didn't, but you could have. So since you could have, where's the presidents? That's always going to be my thing. Where's the presidents? Because other things that were done throughout these playoffs have been so inconsistent from a calling perspective, they all could have gotten in trouble for the same things, but they haven't. And yes, Politically, basketball politics plays a role in a lot of this, but I just would like to see some more consistency that the all the playoffs should have been called like the way we just called this this one. Okay, everybody gets a technical foul. We keep it moving. You may get a little fine here and there. Keep it moving. If that, but I wish that was the standard 
in comparison to other situations in the league throughout these playoffs that took place. And you can obviously, I think the league has learned from that in some cases, but I just would like to hope that there's still more continued calls like this compared to other calls that have led to suspensions or players getting kicked out of games, etc. Because at the end of the day, this is the playoffs. This is what we did. And they, and they come to see the players perform. That's what they do. So they got it right this time. But I'm not letting them off the hook for the other situations. I'm just not. I need some consistent. I need com- need some consistency within the rule books and the application of the rule books, not including politics. Don't include the, uh, the other things and the storylines. I'm talking about the rule book and what applies for the rule book in certain situations, especially come playoff time. I need more consistency in that. But they got it right this time. I'll, I'll, I'll give them credit for getting it right this time. I'm just glad he didn't get suspended. Yes. That would have been a, a major blunder on the league's part. The fine I can live with, but I don't believe he would have gotten fined if it wasn't for who he pushed. And that's the owner of the Phoenix Suns, the new owner, might I add, mm-hmm. Matt Isbell, who recently just did an interview with Bill Simmons on his self-named podcast talking about his disdain for Cavs owner Dan Gilbert, among other things. I, I, um, I, I, don't, I don't think he would have got fined that large of an amount if it was just a regular individual. I just don't. And that's mm-hmm. the thing I have an issue with. I do commend Matt Isbia, though, for coming out and saying that he does not deserve to be suspended. Yes. But I don't appreciate Matt Isbia for not taking accountability for his actions. That too. Because why are you holding on to the ball? (laughs) I just don't get it. You know that the ball is out of bounds. You also know that there's a game going on. And I hope that the fan who got kicked out, who didn't really have anything to do with it because they didn't want to kick Matt Isby out, how you going to kick the man out of his own building and he owned it? Mm-hmm. But I hope he gets at least free tickets to Suns games for the next five years or something. He got to get something or some or money or something because he took the ultimate charge for Matt Isbia. So I hope Matt Isbia taking care of him. But I, I I don't understand the punishment still, though, because you talk about how you want to protect players. But you're not. And this happens all the time. I understand you can't put your hands on people, but like what happened to protecting players? That's my only issue with it. I'm just, but I'm glad that they didn't suspend them. No, I agree with you, man. And that's a very good point. Um, I just, I just feel like, like, like we talked before, the, the NBA's lost the grip on what that looks like. They lost their hands. They lost their hands to control what that looks like. And they need to go back to the drawing board with these, with the newer refs to, really go over what this standard should be because there's no this it's inconsistent it's been inconsistent all playoffs long and you know this is what playoff atmosphere is like we've dealt with so much worse (laughs) in previous eras and people people pay their money to see the best of the best on the court 
not the refs. And that has not always been the case, especially in these playoffs. So I'm glad that we're handling it and talking about it in these angles. Because at the end of the day, the word that still comes out to me in both of our conversations is inconsistency. There's no inconsistency. I mean, there's no consistency right. with the standard that's being put in place for these situations, when it, especially when it comes to the playoffs. So something has to change. Yes, you got to protect your players because they need to be on the court, and that's what people come to pay and see. They didn't come to see you. You know, ain't nobody coming to see you, Otis. Like, <laughs> <laughs> refs, they no matter coming to see you. But at the same time, you you got you to gotta do your job of protecting the players and making it understanding for the fans that what they do, you can't do. So there has to be a balance of all that. And unfortunately, there is not. So if anything, this highlights to me a bigger issue that we've been talking about for the longest this playoff season compared to what the actually what we just witnessed. Oh, for sure. Speaking of superstars, I want to get into a superstar. Devin Booker. He's going on a historic offensive tear right now in these NBA playoffs. He's currently averaging a league best 36.8 points per game through nine games for the Suns, all the while shooting nearly 62% from the floor in that same exact span. Phoenix boasts a 6-3 record in the postseason to date as we are recording this to open up the week. He's shooting 51% from the floor, includes 79% from the field in his last two outings. He just recently exploded for 36 points on the way to converting 14 out of his 18 shot attempts on the night in 40 minutes of floor time to guide the Suns to a five-point win against the Nuggets in game four. Tied his playoff career high, 47 points for the second time in these playoffs in the third time in his career as well in game three, where he shot 20 for 25 from the field, including five for eight from long distance. Booker scored at least 30 points or more in every playoff game to date for the Suns during this postseason with the exception of two outings, both of which resulted in losses for Phoenix as the Suns have posted a 6-1 and record in the seven games where Booker has scored at least 30-plus in a contest. Based on what we have seen from Booker to date as we are recording this week's open run, Josh, do you believe that we are currently witnessing one of the greatest individual playoff runs from a star ever in league history. Yeah, I would like to think so because <laughs> it's the way that he's doing it. One, he's doing it without a Kardashian. That's number one. He broke that curse and he's doing it without a Kardashian. He's been killing all season. So that's already number one. But number two, it's because Devin Booker has emerged in his offensive game. And it's not just from scoring the ball. It's how to read defenses. It's how to facilitate. It's how to draw attention and know how to and, and put people in the right position. When he has the ball full time in his hands, yeah, there's some downsides to that. He oftentimes turns over the ball way too much. But when he handles the ball correctly and you just let him go, he goes. And Phoenix is, I think Phoenix is now realizing that your best chance of winning is when you let Devin Booker go. Kevin Durant, we know he's going to do his thing. Chris Paul doesn't need to have the ball in his hands anymore. If he do, he could be timely possessions in situations where he needs to take over for a little bit here and there. But Monty's go-to now agenda has to be let Devin Booker cook. Let him cook. Whatever that looks like, let him do it. 
Because when that happens, it makes the game that much easier for Phoenix. And it's funny because I feel like the narrative is changing. We all thought when Phoenix got Kevin Durant, oh, everyone's Devin Booker's life is going to be easier. But in reality, Devin Booker is making Kevin Durant's life easier. And you see it in the numbers. So because of that, this Devin Booker effect is historic really for the Phoenix Suns. Yes, leak history, of course. He's doing things that have never been done before. So yeah, you got to put that into, into consideration. But for Phoenix, name the last time you had a player this dynamic playing at this type of level that's equating to winning. You never had that since the 90s with Charles Barkley. That's the only one. The only one. So this is historic for that, especially for that franchise. And of course, across the league, because I mean, name a player that actually killed it after breaking up with a Kardashian. None. He's the only one. But at the end of the day, Devin Booker is showing who he is. And he's showing that, don't get it twisted. I'm glad KD's here, but he's going to be the reason why I succeed, not the other way around. And that's a narrative that I think needs to be discussed because as great as Kevin Durant is, I think we hit that point now where for Kevin Durant, he can be the second best player ranked in the world, arguably, whatever rank you want to call him, he's top tier for sure. But he ain't going too far unless he has that nice sidekick by his side. And Devin Booker is the sidekick right now that for the current tenure of this contract that he signed long-term is going to help him get to that next level. Man, I said it a couple weeks ago that he's hitting shots to the point where you just got to tip your cap to him as a defender. Yep. It hasn't changed. It has not changed. Anytime you make more field goals than you miss, and it's good enough to where you're able to pass a math test or a midterm final <laughs> with your shooting percentages, that's crazy as hell. <laughs> that's crazy. Like, when I saw that he shot 20 of 25 from the floor, like, it's nothing you could do about that. Nothing. And Denver's trying. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you watch every game in this series, for those who are listening and watching our podcast, but, like, they're running traps at him. Yeah. Religiously. Putting a double team on him, left and right. And he's still finding a way to hit these shots under tight duress that are contested fairly well by Denver's perimeter defenders on the wing. I don't know how he's doing it, but I do think right now we are currently witnessing one of the greatest individual playoff runs from a star. Do I think it will be enough to deliver a title? I don't know. But Mm. if it is, I tell you one thing, it will be a hell of a feat. Kenny Smith always says it on Inside the NBA. He said, regular season is where you make your name. Playoffs is where you make your fame. Mm-hmm. Devin Booker's doing that and more. He's doing that. And for a guy who was once criticized and said by pundits and critics to not be a winning player, when in reality, 
he was playing with mostly G League guys prior to the arrival of Chris Paul down in the desert. It always baffled me because it's like, did y'all not see this in Kentucky? And if you didn't, how could you? How could you not? Because I remember when he was in the Final Four going up against Wisconsin, he changed the game literally coming off the bench. Mm-hmm. And Calipari put him on the bench in the closing minutes, and they lost the game. That's the only person who could ever hold Devin Booker back in a fashion <laughs> similar to how Dean Smith held Michael Jordan back with his offense in North Carolina. Like, I, yeah, it, it's, it's one of the greatest individual playoff runs for damn sure. And like I said, he's doing it against the game's top defenses. It's nothing you can do about it. You just really got to shake his hand. Because I know if I was out there defending him, and I've heard, I know people who have played against stars and open runs and pickups. One guy I know played against KD and said, man, I knew KD was for real when I played him one-on-one. I, he said, like, he made so many shots against me, I wanted to punch him. I bet you a lot of guys had that feeling right now against Devin Booker. At least the L.A. Clippers and the Denver Nuggets do. <laughs> oh, most definitely, man. And I think what's also um, interesting about this, too, is who did Devin Booker play with after his NBA Finals run? Kevin Durant and Team USA. He's been around Kevin Durant and these stars for Team USA all this time, you know, to learn to take things to the next level. When you look at Devin Booker's mixtape with Team USA in practices, King of the Hill, one-on-ones. I remember those. Oh, my goodness. He's cooking, guys. And and the best thing about it is you're talking about he's been doing it for a long time. I think what's taking his game to the next level was the fact that being around those guys, especially a Kevin Durant, which during that time was winning multiple championships with the Golden State Warriors, he understood what it means to be efficiently a killer. He was already a killer. But learning how to be an efficient killer, that's what that's the dangerous game that when you tap into as a scorer and as an assassin, you will kill every team you play against. And Devin Booker took note. And you can tell that it's a transition in this game because ever like you said, ever since he was with Chris Paul, his efficiently has gone crazy. And he understood now what it means to not just make 70 points a game, which he has done, but to do it while shooting over 55% from the field, which is what we're seeing now. Because it's a guard. It's a guard. Not a big man who had most of his shots within a restricted area of the floor. He's not doing it in the fashion that Zion doing it in or Giannis. He's doing this, taking pull-up jumpers in the mid-range, getting it, you know, off the dribble. Like, that don't happen on no regular. And you're and you right. He has tapped into a different level of efficiency because I can't even say that he's in the shooter zone at this point. He's just in, he's in fuego. That's what he is. He's on fire, like NBA Jam. For real, man. It's crazy, but it's special to see. And I see why Kevin Durant was like, let me, let me, bring me here. 
Like, bring me to Phoenix. Brooklyn's fine and all, but give me to Phoenix. That's exactly why. Yeah, because he's never played with a scorer like this. And then Mm. makes it even more of a dominant playoff run is the fact that he is doing this all the while actually showing enormous progress on the defensive end. Because among leaders and steals, Booker got to be up at the top because he's getting nearly two or three a night. Yeah. So he's putting it together on both ends of the floor. And if Phoenix can get to NBA finals this year, I wouldn't bet against him with the way he's playing because he looks like he's learned from his lessons the last couple of years, especially after losing the way that they did in the Western Conference semis a year ago against Dallas in seven games. He mm-hmm. looks like he's learned his lessons and said, you know what, man? I'm going to just play my game. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we come out with a win. No matter if we got seven guys playing or guys on the bench ain't stepping up. I got you, Monty. Special, man. It's special. Oh, for sure. But I want to go into recent events that transpired over the last several days out in Milwaukee, a team that we talked about in last week's episode with the Bucks, We talked about whether or not Mike Budenhoser should be allowed to return next season. Bucks must have been listening to open run because guess what? They parted ways with the two-time NBA Coach of the Year via a press release after five seasons of duty with the franchise. He helped guide towards his first championship in a half a century. Just two years ago is the following announcement was initially reported by ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski prior to last weekend. Budenholzer led the Bucks to a 271-120 record through 391 regular season games, including a 65-39 and 39 record in the playoffs as the one-time Greg Popovich protege. Also guided the Bucks to the best record in basketball in three out of his five seasons during his tenure as the head coach in Milwaukee. Nick Nurse is considered to be the odds-on favorite to land the Bucks head coaching job next season, according to those at Bet Online. Although many people believe that Nurse is the odds-on favorite to land the Bucks' job at the present moment to no one's surprise, who do you think should be the top three candidates to replace Budenhoser in Milwaukee next season, Josh? I know Nurse is one of them. He's, I know he's got to be on both of our lists. We, we said it. I'm pretty sure it got like Ime Udoka is looking like, man, maybe I made Boy. my decision a little too soon. Cause there's some yep. good jobs have opened up. That's exactly what I said. That when when that when this situation went down, that thought came to my mind. He may might have took that job too early, and you know, I understand given the situation, he needed a job bad. You know, he's been out with everything that took took place with his uh, situation. You know, you and you're gonna be in a position where you're gonna just take the best opportunity you can at that time, and Houston was so for that to happen. You know, kudos to Emay, but Emay with. Giannis, that's that could be a deadly duo, uh, coaching player duo. But of course, Nick Nurse has to be one of the top ones. Um, I do think they're going to give a good look at Charles Lee, the assistant coach over there, especially when you see what Darvin Ham is doing in LA. When Darvin Ham used to be assistant coach with the Bucks, he went to LA, coached LeBron, and now he flipped that team around and got them to the playoffs. And they're, you know, on the verge, if depending on how 
as we're watching, uh, you know, recording this tonight on Monday, and the and the Lakers are playing right after this recording. Based on how this game goes, you know, they may be going to the Western Conference Finals. So, seeing that, I would not be surprised if, you know, the Bucks look at Charles Lee and say, you know, what, let's give him the job, like we should have potentially given Darvin Ham when he when we interviewed him for a position, or let him go. But I'm gonna say a, a person that I don't think is going to happen. But gosh, it would not surprise me. If Philly loses this series, Doc may come back to the Midwest. And I feel like it could be a good option for Milwaukee, considering that he's used to coaching top-tier talent, obviously. But at the same time, he's coached MVPs. He's coached players like Giannis, who is trying to strive and progress for better. And I honestly think he what's provided on this um, on this book's roster right now may give him something that he may have never had experience before since his Boston days. That's some shooting. He got some shooters on that book squad, and I think you put Giannis with you continue to put Giannis around some shooters. And you give Giannis a respected coach in that sense, you might be able to keep him there long term. But I only think that happens if Doc has a conversation with Giannis. It says, look here, bro, I'll come here and coach, but I need you here long term. I need you to sign that next contract extension. And then I think that could be done. But I would not be surprised if Doc Rivers being a Midwest guy anyways, considering the opportunity to come somewhat home, <laughs> And taking on a, a, a opportunity to coach, you know, a, a superstar like Giannis to help him get back to the promised land. I would not be surprised if that was an option that Bucks would really heavily consider and take. That would be interesting. That would be a blockbuster move. I'm not going to lie to you. I do expect them to hire an experienced NBA head coach. I understand Charles Lee. I'm very familiar with who he is as an assistant in Milwaukee. I think he will be among the finalists in the running for the job. He's also in the running for the Detroit Pistons head coaching job as that was announced at the top of this week as well. I believe that opportunity might be more than likely for Charles leading being with the Bucks, but I do believe he will be in that running. Nick Nurse, of course, my third guy, you say Doc Rivers, who going back to Milwaukee, a place where he once attended college at Marquette University, that would be a hell of a story. And yeah, he does have experience, but the guy that I've had my eye on is the dark horse third candidate for this job is Kenny Atkinson. Mm -hmm. Kenny Atkinson, who we know was the head coach in Brooklyn. Yep. Has got fired by the Nets prior to the pandemic had, you know, then went to Golden State, learned under the tutelage of Steve Kerr, is his lead assistant there, had an opportunity, remember, to get a job with the Charlotte Hornets, had agreed to it, then right. said, no, I'm good. I'm going to come back to Golden State. Looking like he may have made the right decision. This could be the best opportunity for his career to show how much he's truly grown as a coach and putting that to work in Milwaukee with a bunch of talent. Because that's the one thing Kenny Atkinson 
has never had a chance to have during his time as a head coach in the NBA was an assortment of talent. He's also a guy who comes from the Mike Budenholzer coaching tree is he was Mike Budenholzer's lead assistant in Atlanta. So with that being said, I think that's the guy who they're more than likely going to seek to go with if they don't go with Nick Nurse. But that would be my, my dark horse candidate. I think it's Nick Nurse's job to lose. You say, Doc, I'm, I'm going to say Kenny Atkinson. No, that's a very good pick. And, it, and, and like you mentioned, it does make a lot of sense. And it will be a huge upgrade to Kenny Atkinson's coaching uh, experience for sure. Um, totally agree. I totally agree with that. And I would not be surprised, honestly, if that's the option that the Bucks do go into. <clears throat> but like you mentioned, or like Josh, Josh Bookhalter, you know, our guest mentioned, star players need star coaches. I think they're at the Bucks are at that point where star players need star coaches. And when you talk about star coaches that have, that have been seriously considered as potential people that's on the hot seat, yeah, Kenny Agassiz, he's a coach. He's like a three-star coach, though. <laughs> you know, there's level of star coaches. You know, he's like a three-star. Got some experience with professional players and everything like that, but he ain't top tier. Doc Rivers is a five-star coach. And if things go bad, as bad as they say it can be in Philadelphia, if they don't win this series, and Boston does, and I mean, if Philly does let him go, I just don't see him being on being without a, without a job too, uh, too much longer. You know he not. Because one thing about Doc Rivers and me and my friends, we talk about it all the time. He's one of the few coaches in the league who will never have a problem for some odd reason. I don't know what it is. I know he's a cool guy and everything, but like, he keep a he keep a job. He 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 keep a check guy. He keep a check rolling in off of yep. his ability as a head coach. And yeah, he has been in many situations with high prize superstars. So I wouldn't be shocked. And he does fit the criteria of a guy that has won a championship, even though it's been over a decade since he's won one. Fifteen years yep. to be exact. Yep, you completely agree with that. And I think it'll be another feather to his cap if he was to bring a championship with Giannis back to Milwaukee. Because, oh, like for sure. Because, like, like you said, with him, you know, being from Chicago, but he went to Marquette, you know, that's that, that Midwest connection is, some, is, is something different. And um, I think it'll be pretty cool for him to come back come back to that college hometown and really help bring the Milwaukee Bucks back to that relevancy from a finals perspective, which he is capable of doing. He hasn't been successful, like you said, over the past decade, but he has the capability of doing it. And with the owners moving in the way that they're moving and in a lot of ways showing that they'll do whatever it takes to get this thing done. Henceforth, they moved off of Mike Budenholzer for this to happen to make sure that Giannis is, completely happy with the situation he's in because they understand the urgency of the, of the matter and of the, of the time that they're in. You've got to swing for the fences on the coach. And yeah, Nick Nurse is probably the most ideal candidate right now, but I would not be surprised, especially for Nick Nurse, if he holds out just that much longer to see what other opportunities, the coaching opportunities are out there. We talked about the Clippers being a potential option. You know, for him to coach in if they if Tyler was to step down or resign. 
you know, I, I won't be surprised if both of those teams wait until both the, uh, Nick Nurse as well as uh, the Milwaukee Bucks wait out the series, wait out the playoffs to see who stays or who goes. And Nick Nurse could have that much more of an opportunity to look at you know, on, on his, on his uh, potential portfolio. I mean, it's going to be an interesting coaching search for the offseason, depending on what takes place. But I definitely feel like Doc Rivers is the name we got to keep in mind for, especially if Philly lets him, really lets him go, which can be, it can, it can happen. Definitely. But I want to move on from the land of Giannis to discussing an international player who is probably the first prospect to draw this much hype coming into the league since LeBron James. Mm-hmm. 19-year-old French center by the name of Victor Wimbenyama. A lot of people think he's the future of the game. Just had a special recently on Sports Center featured this past weekend. There was a clip where ESPN's Jay Billis stated that the buzz for LeBron coming out of high school just two decades ago was at a higher level than Wimbenyama due to the former being an American-born player and the coverage that surrounded his exploits on the prep level. However, Billis goes on to say that if you put the two side-by-side as prospects next to one another entering the draft today, that Wimbenyama would be the more favorable player to select in the modern-day game as opposed to LeBron when he was set to enter the league back in 2003. Do you agree with Jay Billis's assessment? I've been thinking about that ever since he said it. And it's been on my mind. And I'm like, he has a point with the way that we play the game today. But with, with me being such a, a key figure in the LeBron generation, what I mean by that is, like, I was a kid when I saw it. So, like, us growing up with LeBron, we kind of tend to, in some ways, have generational bias. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard for me to say that. Maybe it is my generational bias kicking in, and I hope not. But I did understand where he was going when he said it. Do you agree with that assessment? Because for those who haven't seen Victor Wimbenyama play, he's a unique dude, man. We're talking seven foot five, can shoot the three, can handle the rock, can protect the rim. Inside, outside, he got it all. It's like literally looking at a creative player off a video game. It's funny that we bring this up because when you really think about it, we thought LeBron James was a creative video game himself. At the time, yes, we did. At that time. At the time, yes, we did. I think, yeah, generational bias can definitely play a huge role in this. Um, But for me specifically, I'm going to slight, I'm going to disagree with Jay Billis. In this, and, and the reason why I say it is because when you look at their games, different playing styles. And you can tell, for me, when I look at Victor Wimbayama's game, I look at a taller version of a Kevin Durant. When I see that compared to LeBron James, completely different st- styles of play, and different ways of, of winning. 
both can be successful, but in LeBron's book, the all-around game, even though the modern game is more three-point oriented, it's more transferable. Where Victor's game, yes, it can be very much three-point oriented, but I haven't seen his development as potentially a facilitator. I haven't seen his game from a, from a standpoint of if he's, you know, drawing when the defense is drawn to him, what he's going to do with it. That game has to develop over time in ways where LeBron coming into the league, he already had that. His questions was his jump shot. No one, everybody knew he could play defense. Everybody he knew he could score the ball whenever he wants, wherever he wants. The problem was, can he shoot the ball consistently? And he, and over time, he did that. But in that era of the game style that's being played at that time, the passing was what was, was what made it so significant because he can do both at the same time. I don't know if Victor Wimbayama can do that as we talk about him right now. And with that uncertainty for me and the way I feel the game should be played, I'm going to go with LeBron James. I think he's a better fit still. But like you said, Victor Wimbayama, that's a, that is a clearly a my player mode game that I, that in 2K, I want everything. I want to see if that transfers to the league because he is truly a specimen of a talent with the gifts and the height that is given to him and the body makeup that's given to him that we have never seen before. And for that to take place now, I still think LeBron had more hype because of the fact that it was in an era where it was never done before. People wasn't playing high school games on ESPN like that. Well, he said that. Bill has said that. Bill has said that LeBron had more hype because he was the American-born player and he was playing on national stages across ESPN and whatnot. Victor Wimbenyama, I think people who follow the game know who he is, who follow YouTube and see these clips on TikTok, they know. But it's a, it's a certain segment of America who may not know. Like your your casual fan may not know who Victor Wimbenyama is. So yeah, as far as hype is concerned, yeah, Braun got him beat by a million. So let me ask you this then, Gabe, because we've had this conversation before about how the league nowadays it seems like it's moving towards the foreigner or the European player. Definitely, it's a Eurocentric. Compared, exactly compared to now. Do you feel like that because of that disparity of the hypeness, the NBA is going to push this narrative as long as they can because they are still trying to be so Eurocentric compared to the American basketball player like LeBron was? I don't even think the league got to push it no more. I think the, the media is pushing it on their behalf. Like we're coming off of a year where this is the fifth year in a row in the NBA where you had a foreign-born player win the Most Valuable Player Award, which is the league's highest individual honor. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't look like there's any end in sight towards that. I think America's only hope in winning an MVP, barring a miraculous year coming from Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, Zion Williamson, or Jason Tatum, I think it's kind of 
short. Like this is just the era that we're in. Now, I agree with Billis's assessment as far as the modern day game goes. Yeah, Wimbenyama probably would be because in an era where pace and space is so important and key, Wimbenyama got a skill set that you can't teach, and that's his height. Mm-hmm. It's seven feet five. Like, yeah, he compares to Kevin Durant skill-wise, but Kevin Durant don't have the ability to protect the rim like this kid do. And I don't know what his passing ability will look like. I do know it's going to get tested, though, right away because he's going to have to draw some double teams just off of his height and his size alone. He's going to draw some double teams. I'm interested to see how he responds to it and how he grows over time as far as passing out of those double teams. That's something that took Giannis a couple years to learn. Joel Embiid, how he grows doing that remains to be seen. I don't doubt his ability to score. I don't mm-hmm. doubt his ability to rebound or block shots. You looking at a guy who is going to alter the course of a franchise wherever he lands, and you know he's going number one overall because he has something that you can't teach as coaches on any level have always said, especially the pro level, his height Mm -hmm. and his skill set. Like he taking three pointers off of one leg. And you, you, you stated it well, when you talk about the only issue or question Mark with LeBron coming in league was his jump shot. And that's true. But man, you just, he just has some, he has things that you can't teach. I think LeBron may, have been the most polished prospect to enter the league, even yeah. without a jump shot. The fact yeah. that he could play multiple positions because people forget when he came into the league, Paul Silas was actually playing him at the point guard position. Sure was. You know, and that's why he was able to average 25 and five and so <laughs> forth. And I always appreciated Paul Silas for doing that at a time period where it wasn't normal to play a guy that was, a small forward at the one spot. You know, rest in peace to him and everything, but salute to him for doing that at a time period where most coaches probably wouldn't have did that. But Wimbenyama, man, like, he got a skill set that even if you were a hard-nosed coach or a stiff-minded coach, you can't really box him in. Right. Like, he's a center, but with his skill set, I could play him at the four. And if I got a defensive big man that's solid enough, he can play the five. I could put Wimby Yama at the three. I can let him run my offense if he's good enough. You know, it's some skills that I, I haven't seen because I've only watched like two full games. But as far as the league being Eurocentric, they don't, NBA ain't even got to push that no more. But they are, though, because they promoted Wimby Yama to us. They put his games on the NBA app for us to watch him play before he even plays an NBA game. So they're trying to build the hype up, but I don't think it's because he's mostly an international player. I think it's because he's an international player with a ton of promise, and they know at some point or expect him to be the face of the league. No, that's a very good point. Those are, those are all very good points, Um. You know, I just wanted to pick your brain on that because we know that's a thing. That's oh, yeah. always been a thing. And, you know, I also feel like 
in some of these analysis that these analysts are bringing, that's really the forefront of it. They're just trying to build defense behind the to protect that forefront. Um, but yeah, man, Victor Wimbayama is a different dude. He's definitely a, he's a generational talent. He's gonna flip a lot of heads when it comes to generations to come. And yeah, it's gonna be very interesting to see what he does in the NBA. Like I'm really excited to see that because. We're going to be seeing something, like you said, we've seen something that's never been done before. Oh, for sure. And I, I want to ask you real quick, because I'm looking at the lottery odds for the draft, which is mm-hmm. less than one week away, or will be less than one week away when this episode drops. Detroit, Houston, and San Antonio, they each hold the highest odds of landing the number one overall pick in this year's draft at 14% apiece followed by Charlotte at 12.5%, Portland at 10.5%, as well as Orlando at 9%. Among those teams that are in the draft lottery, which team would you prefer to see win the draft lottery for the right to select Victor Wimbenyama in number one overall? Ooh. I'm going Orlando. I would love to see him in Orlando. Imagine a lineup where you have Paolo Banquero, you have Bobo, and you got Victor Victor Wimbayama. <laughs> the, yeah, the remember land. we talk about that during the holiday with Steven. I, I was the, saying the that. Oh my God, the length that you're gonna see on the defense, and you won't even see the court. You're not even gonna see the court. You can two threes on that mug all day long and you screwed. Like that's and not to mention the offensive talent that they all bring. Because Paolo can get you buckets. Bobo is learning to get you buckets, but he has the offensive, he's 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 talented offensively. He's learning to stretch the floor. And Victor Wimbayama is just him. He's him. Putting all that together. My gosh, man. That's going to be deadly. And if you get that, you're going to have to really start figuring out what your coaching situation is going to be like. Because now coaches are going to – because the coach you got now, as great as he is, if you don't think he can take you to the promised land, which Victor has a chance to help boost and they speed up this process in Orlando, you need to really figure out what you're going through. This may be – this may be the revival of the Orlando Magic back when Shaq and Penny got together. If that were to happen, you better make sure that as great as the as the coach he is, I forgot the coach's name again. Unfortunately, Jamal Mer- Mosley, Jamal, Jamal Mosley, former a brother. Assistant. Yes, Jamal Mosley, a brother that great coach that we respect and love, and we're not calling to get fired at all. I don't <laughs> believe in that, but oh, he won't after after what he did this season. Plus, that's a young core that he's growing with. Yeah, he's only in his second season on the job. He'll he'll be able to get a couple more years in with this group. Uh, yeah, I I really hope so, because if you get Victor, that process gets sped up that much more, and you're and you better be able to be able to take you know help take those reins moving forward, because everybody's gonna want to knock they're not gonna be knocking on the door to try to coach this kid, and that's the best of the best. So, Orlando may have a lot on their hands if that were to happen, and I hope that they are prepared for it, considering they've been out of those shadows for so long 
this is tough for me. I know some people who would like to say the San Antonio Spurs mm -hmm. because of the legacy of big men that have came through that franchise, such as David Robinson, Tim Duncan. To add Victor Wimbenyama to that tree would be amazing, especially with the tactician known to the world as Greg Popovich. Mm -hmm. Maybe he could have a final run in San Antonio for a couple of years if he had that guy with him. Besides Zach Collins, who resurrected his career in San Antonio this past season. But for me, as much as I would love to see him in Orlando, because I've dreamed about that scenario since the holidays. I really have. And that would be nasty. I want to see Michael Jordan spend some money. I want to see Michael Jordan do some things that we need to criticize him more for not doing. And that's building a winning team. I would love to see Victor Wimbenyama land in Charlotte. I'm going to tell you why. You got a young point guard in LaMelo Ball yeah. who love to get up and down the floor and push it in transition. Likes to play in the pick and roll. He has a big that he can do that with in Mark Williams, who's nice. Mm -hmm. Solid defensive anchor. Get him another twin tower in there who not only can play in a pick and roll game with him, but they could do a little bit of pick and pop actions together. I would love to see that. You get LaMelo Ball with Victor Wimbiyama and Mark Williams, and you supply him with a couple of other shooters that can defend on the wing, Charlotte in business. And they got the right guy in the front office who's established in former Lakers general manager, Mitch Kupchak, who's drafted fairly well since he's been in Charlotte. They just have had some issues with maturity in their locker room and not having enough vets. But that's the place I would want to see him land. Because if he were to land there, it's going to force Michael Jordan's hand, who is reportedly, as of a few months ago, is considering selling the team mm -hmm. and becoming a minority owner, which would place him in the background. That makes their franchise even more valuable. But as long as Michael Jordan is in that seat, by Charlotte getting that number one pick, it would force him to build a winner at that point. I would think, I know if I was someone who was a sports media figure in Charlotte, I would call him out on that. Because as much as I love Michael Jordan as an athlete and as a talent and as a brand, which he is, he has not had a successful tenor as an owner when it comes to on-the-court affairs. He has not. And that's a shame. He's done great in the community there. But Charlotte is a perfect place to build a winner right now. They have a rising population. It's an affordable place to live. Job market's booming out there. Why not build you a winner in the Queen City? That, to me, would be the ideal landing place for Victor Wimbenyama if it was not San Antonio or if it was not Orlando or if it was not Houston. 
No, that's that's actually a very good option. I didn't really think about that. So, but yeah, a pick and roll with Lamella Ball and Victor, and a pick and pop because he can yeah. shoot. Yeah, you know, like that. That would be real scary. And then you got Mark Williams in the interior with Victor Wembanyama on the opposing end. If you're trying to drive into the paint, good luck. And Charlotte has had one of the worst defenses in the league the last couple years. Mm-hmm. You ain't got to worry about that with Mark Williams and Victor Wimbenyama in the interior. Even if your point of attack defense is trash, they're going to swat it out. That's going to be something else. That that really can be something else for sure. But I'm, I'm still going to dream on my magic, man. I'm, I'm still oh, dreaming I get on it. I get it. I, still, I got to dream on that one. That's just... Whew, a name. dark horse too a dark horse too i would say is portland even though portland has been a rough place for big men if you go by history with guys like bill walton even though he won a championship there sam bowie greg Oden all had knee issues but dame if dame really trying to stay in portland i'm pretty sure they're gonna have a vested interest in trying to get that number one pick and that might be the perfect way to keep them there but we'll see but my last question to you before we close is in regards to the number two overall pick. If you had the GM seat and you had that number two overall pick, who would you seek to select between either the young guard from the G League Night Squad and Scoot Henderson or the freshman forward out of Alabama by the name of Brandon Miller? Oh, man. I think it just depends on what the need is based on the team. But if you're talking about overall league-wise, I'm probably going to go with Braxton Miller. And the you're reason why is going to go with Brandon. I mean, yeah, Brandon. I'm sorry, yeah, Brandon yeah. Miller. I'll go with him. Because the week, the, the success of the league now is perimeter-oriented. That is 3 and D. And Brandon can get it done. He's the best player in that department that can do that. And has shown he can do that. Under adverse... You know, under, you know, adverse uh, adverse circumstances, by the way, considering that he, you know, has his runners with the law. I mean, he could, if you can, if you can perform under those circumstances, I'm pretty sure he could perform in the NBA. So I think he, I think he would be my number two because that's where the direction of the league is going. And yes, point guard is ideal. Point guard is necessary, especially nowadays with these hybrid guards, these combo guards coming in. But it's hard to find a talent like Brandon Miller and the perform and the way that he can score the ball as well as shoot the ball to go along with your defense. I, I, I would take that option ideally compared to school Henderson, which, you know, dynamic player, game changing point guard can really change your franchise for real. But I don't know if he could do it in a way, depending on the roster and the team that drafts him. I don't know if they can do it in a way that maybe Brandon Miller can right away. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I probably would lean towards Miller too, just because of the upside. And not only the upside, what you getting from the jump, where Scoot, yeah, he going to impact the game just with his speed. And he's definitely going to help you set the tone in games and, and establish pace. And he could get, up the floor in the end with the best of them. He gets to the rim as well, but the biggest question mark with him is his shooting. Once he tightens that up, 
yeah, he's going to be scary. I definitely think he's a, a top three pick no matter what. Mm-hmm. He's going to be fine. It's just about landing in a situation where he's on a team that's in dire need of a point guard. And depending on who gets that number two pick, yeah, he might go number two. But if we're going on overall talent, yeah, I, I probably will get an upper hand to Miller as well because you're talking about a guy that can lock up, shoot the three ball, catch and shoot or off the dribble, super athletic, and got size and length that you just can't teach. And in an era where the wing position is so crucial to your success as a team, you kind of have no choice but to go with him. Yeah, this draft's going to be very interesting to see, uh, especially this lottery, which, by the way, I'll be in the building for. Yeah, I, I know you will. And that's going to be going <laughs> down at the Palmer House Hilton in Chicago. I, I think a lot of people going to want to be there for that one. That, that This lottery has a lot of major ramifications for the future of the league, especially with the guy that we've been talking about the last, you know, 20-plus minutes and Victor Wimbayama. But I don't know if you saw these all-rookie teams revealed today mm-hmm. with first teams being guys being Jalen Williams of the Thunder, Keegan Murray of the Kings, Benedict Matherin of the Pacers, Paulo Banquero, the rookie of the year for the Magic, and Walker Kessler of the Jazz. Second team consisted of a pair of Pistons and Rockets teammates, Jalen Duran and Jaden Ivey, Tari Eason and Jabari Smith Jr. for the Rockets, and then Jeremy Shohan rounded it out with the Spurs. Did the voters in your estimation get the selection right for the 2022-2023 all-rookie teams? Man, um, politically, yes. Um, <laughs> I said politically because if you really look at the teams that are being represented in this rookie class, they put the winners up top and the losers of the second. I mean, let's just call it like it is. The Thunder overperformed this year. They were winning this year. Kings definitely were winning this year. Pacers, eh, magic. But Paulo Bancaro was a, was a given. So you knew that wasn't going to go nowhere. And then the Jazz overperformed this year, better than what they did before or what they expected. Everybody else, we talk about the Pistons, the Rockets, and the Spurs, we knew they was going to be trash. So, you know, I think that plays a role. I, I really do. I think for me, though, you've been a Benedict Matherin guy from the jump. So I'm not surprised he's up there uh, with the top with, with, in the first team. He, and he did have a very, really good season. I would replace Jaden Ivey with him. I think Jaden Ivey had a lot, had more moments where he where he was showing like I can be that dude compared to Benedict Matherin, who was coming off the bench at that time. And Benedict Matherin, literally, like you like you've stated before, was at one point kind of making you put his name in a hat and 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 hunt for six man of the year. And I believe himself. he was a finalist at one point. Uh, he didn't he didn't finish the year as a finalist, but he was in the running. Right. He he was damn sure in the running. Walker Kessler was another guy I was high on. I think he deserved it. You know, he was among the league leaders, if not the league leaders himself, among all rookies and blocks and whatnot. Jalen Williams had a, a late season surge, I think, yeah. that parlayed him into first team. The only issue I had with it, honestly, bro, was Keegan Murray on first team over Jaden Ivey. Uh, Jay Ivey was a first team guy to me and I'll say that and I, I love Keegan Murray and I love his game I think he's gonna have a bright future in the career he displayed mm-hmm. some of that in the playoffs 
particularly in game four in Golden State for Sacramento, of what he can do when he has a, a role that Mike Brown puts him in to knock down shots and whatnot. But I think Jay Ivey should have been first team. And if it was anybody I would bump off, it would be Keegan Murray. And I do think he was the beneficiary of being on a winning team. Yeah. And the fact that his team was a top three team in the West, more eyes were on him. Not to take away from him, I thought he was deserving of an all-rookie nod, but Jaden Ivey was my only issue being second team. Outside of that, I, I have no issues with the rookies that they picked at all. Yeah, I, I agree with you, man. Jaden Ivey, to me, just had the better season. He just had the better season. It's, yes, they didn't win, but when you think Detroit Pistons and what they had this season, it was on Jaden Ivey because Killian Hayes was out. And for the most part, and when he was playing, he, he didn't perform at the highest level. Cade Cunningham was out all season long. Right. Jaden Ivey showed up and said, no, I'm the man. And showed that he can be that guy, no matter if it's a point guard or a two guard. He can play both positions. So I just feel like, yeah, Jaden Ivey should have been first team. I went with Benedict considering that he was coming off the bench. Um, and in a lot of ways, kind of degraded, kind of de- uh disintegrated per se compared to Jalen Williams ascension at the time um I think that I think that did cost him but I you make a good point with Keegan Murray too he 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 played well but it was in spurts and in a lot of ways based on what the Kings were doing and you can argue he didn't have too much of an input in a regular season with that team as he did when it came to the playoff mode um so but Jaden Ivey should have been number one. He should have been that first team, hands down. Yeah, I, I agree with you on your assessment on that for certain. But with that said, want to thank everybody who took out the time to listen to yet another edition of Open Run presented to you by War Media. Please make sure to check out all our great shows. Got that recent episode of the At Bat Podcast with my man Saul Rodriguez and Miles Porter out and available on all podcast platforms, including our YouTube page. Got my man Josh Hicks with me. You can check out his latest episode of Bulldoze with my man Drew Stevens, talking on all the recent fiascos that have been transpiring on Madison Avenue, most notably with our tourist Connor Sovis getting a contract extension. I can't tell you I saw that coming. But if you want their thoughts on that, you can go check that out as well. For myself, Gabriel Wilkins, and my man Josh Hicks, so long, everybody.